Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, December the 26th, 2023. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story. It's the top 10 Iowa stories of 2023, and it's compiled from Globe Gazette staff. As 2023 draws to a close, the Globe Gazette looks back at some of the biggest and most controversial news stories of 2023. After a contentious legislative session and on the eve of the 2024 Iowa caucuses, it's no surprise politics dominates this year's list. The choices are presented in chronological order with no pretense of rating them by importance. Number one, in January, surrounded by school choice advocates and private school students, Governor Kim Reynolds signed a huge private school assistance bill, the culmination of a three-year effort and a victory on one of the governor's top legislative priorities. The program will provide $7,600 education savings accounts for tuition and expenses at private schools. Eventually open to all students, regardless of income, it will cost an estimated $345 million annually by the year 2027. Supports, supporters say the law provides choice for parents to send children to private school who can't afford it. Opponents say it will siphon money from public schools and fund unaccountable private schools that can turn away students with disabilities or who don't share their values. Number two, in March, Republican state lawmakers passed a slate of anti-LGBTQ bills, including a ban on gender-affirming care for minors. Lawmakers also passed a law requiring students, employees, parents, and visitors to use restrooms, changing rooms, and other related facilities according to their biological sex as listed on a person's official birth certificate. Thousands of Iowans publicly protested. Students at dozens of schools across the state walked out of classes, and hundreds attended rallies at the Iowa Capitol. Democratic lawmakers, teachers, LGBTQ organizers, and students said the bill contradicts notions of freedom and liberty. Republicans described the ban on gender-affirming care as necessary to protect children from medical care when the science is not settled, and the bathroom bill as a common-sense way to ensure the privacy and safety of students. Number three, in May, Reynolds signed a slate of education bills into law, including a bill limiting LGBTQ instruction in topics through sixth grade, and barring books with sexual content from school libraries. The law bars discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through sixth grade, bans books depicting sex acts from school libraries, and requires schools to notify parents if a student requests a change in their name or pronouns. Supporters said it expands parents' rights and gives them more input over their children's education, It was opposed by LGBTQ rights organizations, which said it would put transgender youths in danger. Number four, on May 28th, structural issues led to the partial collapse of an apartment building in Davenport, killing three people. At the time of the collapse, there were 53 residents registered as living in the 80-unit building. Search and rescue efforts continued for nearly a week at the six-story apartment building constructed in 2015-2016, It was eventually demolished, but left behind a slew of lawsuits, most still unresolved. Number five, in July, Reynolds signed into law a near-total ban on abortions in Iowa, passed three days earlier by a special session of the Iowa legislature. 
Days later, a Polk County District judge temporarily blocked enforcement of the new law. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd in November filed the state's legal arguments to the Iowa Supreme Court seeking to uphold the law and that would ban most abortions after six weeks. Justices plan to hear the appeal. Number six, in October, Navigator CO2, one of three carbon dioxide pipeline companies seeking to build in Iowa, announced it was canceling its proposal because of unpredictable regulatory environment in Iowa and South Dakota. The pipeline projects are meant to capture lucrative federal tax credits for sequestering carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas that is primarily as a primary driver of climate change. Ethanol plants would benefit from the tax credits and from producing low-carbon fuels that could be sold in stricter markets. But activists cite safety risks while questioning the alleged environmental benefits of the project, and landowners have balked at the proposed use of eminent domain to acquire easements for the projects. The pipeline proposals remain by Summit Carbon Solutions and Wolf Carbon Solutions. Wolf has said it will not use eminent domain for its short route in Iowa. Number seven, in November, candidates who supported restrictions on school materials and classroom discussions about gender and transgender students were roundly defeated in school board elections across Iowa. School board elections in the Mason City, Linmar, Ankeny, and Johnston school districts, just to name a few, went almost exclusively for candidates who were supported by the teachers' union and who opposed book policing and transgender student policies. Almost exclusively, candidates who were endorsed by conservative groups, including the self-described parents' rights advocacy group Moms for Liberty, failed. In 2021, school board elections in Iowa and across the country swung toward candidates who opposed pandemic-era restrictions on schools including closures and masks. In 2023, the pendulum swung the opposite direction. Number eight, in November, Reynolds officially endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in his quest for the Republican presidential nomination, calling him one of the most effective leaders I have ever seen. Reynolds originally said she would remain neutral in the run-up to the caucuses, but over the summer began to suggest she might endorse after all. Typically, Iowa's governors have stayed neutral. Donald Trump criticized Reynolds as disloyal. He called the decision the end of her political career. This month, Trump's campaign released an ad including comments from Reynolds praising the former president. She argued the ad was misleading since she has endorsed DeSantis. Number nine, throughout 2023, former President Donald Trump dominated the contest for Iowa's delegates to the 2024 Republican National Convention. Trump currently leads his Republican rivals by more than 30 percentage points, according to a real clear politics average of Iowa polls. Many political experts predicted the anti-Trump GOP vote would consolidate as the Iowa caucuses drew nearer. Instead, Trump's advantage has grown. Trump had the support of 51% of likely Iowa Republican caucus attendees in a survey released this month, conducted by J. Ann Selzer for the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and Mediacom. Trump's standing grew by eight percentage points from a similar poll in October. While Trump rivals like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley devoted huge amounts of time and money in Iowa, 
Trump has visited the state much less, although he stopped here four times in the last month. At number 10, in December, a satanic temple display inside the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines was destroyed by a former U.S. Navy fighter pilot who was recently defeated in a statehouse election in Mississippi, was accused of causing the damage. A Facebook posting by the Satanic Temple said the display, known as a Baphomet statue, was destroyed beyond repair. The display is permitted by rules that govern religious installations inside the Capitol, but drew criticism from many conservatives, including presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. But others, including State Representative John Dunwell, a Republican from Newton, who also is a minister, warned against allowing a vocal critics to silence a minority for thinking or believing differently than the majority. Writing on Facebook, Dunwell said, I don't want the, statute, the state excuse me, evaluating and making determinations about religions. Shocked so many want to give up their freedom so they don't have to see a display they disagree with. Next is an article entitled, Osage Esports Team Wins State Championship. It's written by Jason W. Selby of the Press News. Head esports coach Chris Kyle wears many hats. Recently, he led the Osage Community High School esports team to a state championship, its first ever. He is also in his first year as head football coach. When he is not piloting the Green Devils on the gridiron, he is a math and computer science teacher, a National Honor Society advisor, and a father of three. Osage math teacher Jeremy Q is assistant coach. Kyle led the founding of the esports program five years ago. Two years ago, it became an official school athletic program. This year, it won the title. Kyle graduated from Dyke New Hartford in 20, 2007. He grew up on an acreage with, while his parents worked in Waterloo. They had cattle, chickens, and Kyle did chores like feeding the cows and cleaning their pens. On the farm, he led an isolated existence, especially before he could drive. His closest friend lived 15 miles away. He had a younger sister, Kayla, and they spent most of their time together. They helped the parents clean around the house. I didn't spend a lot of time with my friends because I lived in the middle of nowhere, Kyle said. So I got into video games at a younger age because we didn't have cable TV. That was how I spent free time. That was that and reading. We watched a lot of PBS. My parents were big on respect. Do what you're told and work hard. Whatever you do, put 100% effort into it. They were really big on school. They went to all of my conferences. They were big on doing things the right way, and that is what I try to instill in my kids. Kyle and his wife, Callie, have three children, Myla, Emmy, and Theodore. Callie is a special education teacher at Lincoln Elementary School. Growing up, isolated on the farm, video games were a part of Kyle's life. His first system was a Sega Genesis, and some of his favorite games were sports titles like Madden and NBA Jam. He moved on to a PlayStation and Xbox. While he played sports video games, he was also a three-sport athlete in high school with cross-country basketball and track. In cross-country, he made it to state. After high school, he graduated from the University of Iowa and taught in Burlington for four years. He has a degree in math education. Recently, he earned his computer science certificate from the University of Northern Iowa. Osage Esports fields more than one team. A team is a group of students who play a specific video game, like Super Smash Brothers, 
which qualified for state and finished fifth in Division II, the middle-sized school class. Forest City won the title in that game. The other fall team played Rainbow Six Siege and excelled. The kids actually took it to the school board to get that approved themselves, Kyle said. Just because with me coaching football, I didn't want to add another title to the fall, so I said they'd have to take care of getting that approved like I do for the other games. Next, the students fundraised to pay for the title. Once the football season was over, Kyle flipped to his role as eSports head coach. When they took their seats and grabbed their controllers, they made short work of the competition, defeating a much bigger school, Linmar, for the state championship. Previously, they had finished second four times. We had a really good fall, Kyle said. Our kids worked really hard. We've also been so close. I was just really proud of the kids because it was one of those titles where, in our first year, none of us had any expectations. They were just excited that they could do it. Last year, all six Osage teams made it to state. One of Kyle's athletes, Logan Mitchell, participates on five different teams. He lets us take care of our team for the most part, Mitchell said, of Kyle's hands-off approach to coaching. He's always at our matches, trying to help out where he can. He's very understanding. If you have a problem, just tell him, and he'll make it work. The eSports lab in the school, right across the hall from Kyle's classroom, was finished in August of 2022. It's an impressive setup. This room gives the kids a home, he said. It allows us to have a space that's our own. We're thankful to our donors and our sponsors. Each team has a captain, the student with the most expertise. They talk about strategy leading up to a match. With all of his teaching and coaching and parenting, Kyle does not have much downtime. He also helps coach oldest daughter Myla's fifth grade basketball team. He takes his children to the eSports lab and to football practice just to spend more time with them. He teaches them the importance of teamwork. Myla is also a dancer. I think it's just trying to be really intentional when I'm home, he said. Just trying to be dad, not trying to get caught up in some of the other stuff. I try to be at as much of my kids' activities as I can. My wife is a saint. She carries a lot of the heavy lifting during the fall. Kyle is also trying to get a middle school esports program started. We want to keep creating opportunities for kids, Kyle said. Our next story is entitled Mason City Man Sentenced in Federal Drug Case. This is written by Lisa Groet of the Globe Gazette. A man who sold methamphetamine in North Iowa was sentenced December 15 to more than eight years in federal prison. According to a press release, 32-year-old J. James Eden of Mason City received the prison term after a January 13, 2023 guilty plea to conspiracy to contribute a controlled substance. In a plea agreement, Eden admitted that between 2020 and 2021, he and another man conspired with others to distribute 500 grams or more of a mixture containing a detectable amount of meth. Eden further admitted that in September 2021, he distributed more than 50 grams of ice meth in the Mason City area. Eden was arrested, or excuse me, was sentenced in Sioux City to 100 months imprisonment and was ordered to pay a mandatory special assessment of $100. He must also serve a five-year term of supervised release after the prison term. There was no parole in the federal system. Now we'll turn to the opinion page and we come to an opinion and it's another view comes from the Las Vegas Review Journal. 
and it's entitled Rich Paying Fair Share Will Not Fix U.S. Debt. Profligate spending has pushed tax receipts up 28% of GDP, the highest since 1965. In his New York Times newsletter, business reporter Peter Coy in September argued that the only real solution for the nation's rising debt crisis is more tax revenue. In other words, the government needs to take more money from Americans who work for a living. Coy, to his credit, does acknowledge that many of those who hold a similar opinion rarely admit. This would require more than just the rich paying their fair share. To address a problem of such magnitude, the debt now rushes towards $34 trillion. Taxes will have to go up on a sizable chunk of people in the top half of the income distribution. Not just on the dastardly one percenters, mind you. Higher taxes for Americans in the top 50% of wage earners. That would include all individual taxpayers earning more than $40,000 a year. It's true, as Coy notes, that members of both parties, despite the political rhetoric from budget hawks, are loath to cut entitlements and defense spending for fear of rousing powerful special interest groups. It's also true that any long-term compromise reached between Democrats and Republicans to impose a modicum of fiscal responsibility in Washington will likely involve higher taxes in some fashion. Yet to downplay the role of profligate spending in deepening the country's sea of red ink is to ignore a major part of the equation and to perpetuate the type of fiscal imprudence that has brought us to this point. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that U.S. tax receipts at all levels of government climbed to nearly 28% of gross domestic product last year, up from 29%, or excuse me, 25% in 2019. This is the highest level since 1965, according to the report. The trend is also occurring in other wealthier nations. The increases are worth hundreds of billions of dollars in additional revenue for governments, the Wall Street Journal noted, that are navigating an array of new spending needs. In the face of progressive dogma blaming tax cuts for soaring deficits, just a few years after the Trump's tax reform became law, Federal income tax collections set new records in both fiscal 2021 and 2022, hitting almost $5 trillion in the latter. But what those who turn a blind eye to the spending side of the ledger overlook is that many Americans might be more comfortable sending a higher portion of their earning to Washington if they felt that the federal government would spend those contributions wisely and efficiently. As it stands now, they have no such confidence. An actual commitment to fiscal responsibility, spending restraint, would be a start. Cries of poverty from the federal government evaporate under even cursory scrutiny. No matter how much cash flows into the U.S. Treasury, it is never enough, nor will it ever be. And an opinion from Froma Harrop, who lives in New York City and Providence, Rhode Island, and writes for Creators Syndicate. It's entitled, What Do We Really Mean by Affordable Housing? It's been said by conservatives and liberals, America faces a crisis of affordable housing, and the way out of it is to build more houses. Wouldn't it make more sense to first understand the extent of the problem? Real estate interests have sucked in advocates for the poor in their Yes in My Backyard campaigns. Their mission is often to bulldoze through the zoning laws that ensure a neighborhood's quality of life. Many residents in America's homeless encampments can't afford anything. New units might provide rent relief for some working-class tenants down on their luck, 
Others have problems that go beyond matters of supply and demand. Yes, in my backyard schemes can get pretty outrageous. A developer in New York City recently punched through local zoning laws to build an 80-story billionaire skyscraper near Manhattan's staid Sutton Place. The area was already full of two 20-story apartment buildings, but this guy got permission to break through the height limits in part by offering to create some affordable apartments, which happened to be miles away in Queens. In the meantime, he displaced about 80 families, most of whom lived in the old walk-ups that actually did provide housing at working-class rents. Often gone, too, on such projects are the little street-level shops, the florists and the shoe repairs, which preserve a sense of place. Conservatives frequently tout Houston as a model for affordable housing, crediting its lax zoning laws. The larger reason is that Houston is surrounded by Texas. It can spread into the prairies and gently rolling hills. San Francisco is surrounded on three sides by water. What happens in this country when people feel priced out of neighborhoods is they create new neighborhoods. High rents in Manhattan sent younger workers into neglected parts of Brooklyn that have since been revived. Gen Z, meanwhile, is reportedly looking at smaller cities where they can find more space at less cost. The destinations include Oklahoma City, Birmingham, Alabama, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, and Louisville, Kentucky. That trend should take pressure off the very expensive big cities while breathing new life into some very pleasant metros and fine housing stock, places that earlier generations had bypassed. In the suburbs, single-family homes have been built on large lots, originally intended to keep out poorer people, and some zoning rules that forbid duplexes two-family homes, make little sense. Converting a garage into a granny apartment shouldn't be a problem. Good arrangements can be made for filling in some low-density areas, especially near public transportation. But it does not follow that suburbs must submit to any new tower that destroys the small-town feel of their downtowns. Building booms can destroy the historic structures that make a place special. This is happening all over the world. In Cairo, for example, Working-class neighborhoods are being bulldozed and replaced by concrete high-rises. If you were being invaded, all what you'd care about is your mon monuments, your trees, your history, your culture, said Mamdu Sakar, an Egyptian architect and urbanist, and now it's all being destroyed without any reason, without any explanation. Back in the U.S., housing market rent increases have moderated of late, to the point where economists predict housing should soon bring the inflation numbers down. Falling interest rates are lowering the cost of buying a house. New construction and incentives for some owners to fix up old spaces are indeed adding to supply. So let's not level neighborhoods in the interest of massive projects. Some ways to address the cost of housing will involve private decisions. Some may involve public subsidies. They certainly shouldn't require handing our main streets to the real estate barons. The top story on the sports page is entitled Finding More Success, New Perspective Helping Osage's Kittleson on Mat. It's written by Jim Nelson, who's the regional sports editor, and the dateline is Osage. Winning a lot had never been enough for Anders Kittleson. For his first three seasons in high school wrestling, one at Crestwood of Cresco, and the last two at Osage, the Green Devil Senior was not only consumed with winning, but winning by a more dominant effort than his previous. And if he didn't succeed in that drive, it ate him up internally. 
Therefore, after Kittleson, for the second time in his career, took second at the traditional state championship last February, he and Osage head coach Brent Jennings had long philosophical conversation. We talked a lot about making small steps, Jennings said. He put so much pressure on himself to win big, and if things didn't go that way, that pressure mounted. I told him it's time to put that aside, focus on competing, and have some fun. He is a senior. I said, you need to have a little fun while you're here, making him understand that this is his last go-around in high school and he needs to enjoy it a little bit. A state runner-up at 106 pounds as a freshman at Crestwood, Kittleson has stacked on a fourth-place finish as a sophomore and last year lost 6-0 to to future Iowa wrestler Cale Peterson of Greene County in the 132-pound state final. He has lost less than 10 times in his career while accumulating more than 130 victories. In order to reach his own goals and climb the podium one step higher, Kittleson admits he needed to reevaluate his approach. The first step was moving from Seabolt Wrestling Academy to Immortal Wrestling in Waterloo, Cedar Falls, Kittleson said. I did have a little bit of a philosophy change, and it is not about winning and losing, but all about evolving and getting better, Kittleson said. Learning from every match, whether I go out and get a pin or if I lose, it doesn't matter. This big philosophy change has helped a lot, and it happened after the club switch. To date, the results have been good for Kittleson. He is off to a 19-0 start and ranked number one at 150 pounds in Class 2A. Whether he stays at 150 is one question that remains for Kittleson heading into the winter break. I'm actually thinking about making the descent to 144, Kittleson said at the Battle of Waterloo last week. I don't know if you will see me at 50 this whole season. We will see. I feel good. I don't feel big or small. I think there is a little room to lean out a bit, and that is going to be is going into the decision. I'm playing around with it. We will see what happens. One decision that is out of the way is where Kittleson will wrestle in college. In September, Kittleson announced he will wrestle at the Air Force Academy. A lot went into that decision. I think just the opportunities it is going to give me after wrestling, college is done, Kittleson said. There were other places I could have went, but it felt like home and the environment that was going to put me in the best position to succeed after college. Kittleson said he has always wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, and that is one avenue he has considering. He talked of great engineering schools at the Air Force. I'm tactical, hands-on learner, Kittleson added. There is the Space Force, a lot of variety, lots of options, so I'm not counting anything out. Kittleson said another factor is he has a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins in the Denver area, so while staying close to home for college never really factored into his decision, he did like the fact that he'd have family nearby. There was another source to learn what it would be like to be at Air Force, where next year Kittleson will attend the U.S. Air Force Academy Preparatory School before officially entering the academy in 2025-2026. Jennings' son, Brock, wrestled at Air Force and currently is stationed at Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska and in his spare time is an assistant coach at Glenwood High School in Iowa. I got a pretty good education of going through it with my son having gone there, Jennings said, so I knew it was going to be a good fit for Anders. I kind of told him he'd be a good fit for them and it worked out, worked out pretty well. With his date with the Air Academy in the future, Kittleson's focus remains razor sharp on taking the next step at the state tournament. 
I'm taking it one day at a time, trying to get better, Kittleson said. That will remain the big thing for me. Jennings says he likes the new approach, adding Kittleson never had the wrong approach, just needed better perspective. He is a totally different kid inside the wrestling room to outside the wrestling room, Jennings said. In the wrestling room, he is all business, pretty serious. He has pretty high expectations of himself and whomever he is working out with, a pretty high level of intensity. He takes the sport pretty seriously and has invested a lot of time in it. But outside of the room, he is calmer and more relaxed, a little more happy-go-lucky. Here's a quick rundown of what's on TV and sports today. College football, 1 p.m. is on ESPN. It's the Quick Lane Bowl, Rolling Green versus Minnesota in Detroit. At 4.30 p.m. on ESPN, it's the First Responder Bowl, Texas State versus Rice, which takes place in Dallas. And at 8 p.m. on ESPN, it's Guaranteed Rate Bowl, Kansas versus UNLV, which takes place in Phoenix. In men's soccer at 6.30 a.m. today, USA Premier League Nottingham Forest at Newcastle United. 9 a.m. USA Premier League Fulham at Bournemouth. At 11.30 a.m. USA Premier League Liverpool at Burnley. Burnley excuse me, and at 2 p.m. on the USA Channel, it's Premier League Aston Villa at Manchester United. You are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now we'll move on to the Fort Dodge Messenger. The top story is entitled, Lions Club Helps Kids See Clearly. Volunteers did more than 1,000 screenings this year. It's written by Kelby Wingert. With all medical conditions, it's best to catch them early, and that's exactly what the Iowa Kids Sight program does with young children's vision through early and annual screenings. Locally, the Fort Dodge Lions Club travels to area schools and daycares to perform vision screenings for children from six months old through kindergarten. In the roughly 20 years of the program, club members have screened thousands of children for their eyesight problems. This is such great service that is out there and it's free, said Steve Riemann, Iowa Kids Site Coordinator for the Fort Dodge Noon Lions. I just don't know how to describe it other than it is a gift for us to do it. The Iowa Kids Site Program is a joint project of the Lions Clubs of Iowa and the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Iowa Stead Family Children's Hospital. The Noon Lions have nine Kids Site volunteers who go into local schools and daycares with a specialized camera that takes a close-up photo of the kids' eyes, which is then sent to Stead Children's Hospital to be analyzed. Then each child's family is informed whether their screening was clear if their vision needs to be monitored, or if they need a referral for further care. The KidSight program as a whole averages about 5% referral or monitor rate, but the Fort Dodge Noon Lions have a rate of 7% for the area. So it shows that the need is there, Riemann said. So out of every 100 kids that we test, 7 or 8 may maybe weren't going to an eye doctor when maybe they should. Occasionally, the initial screening photo isn't clear enough to analyze, so the kids' sight team will go back to the school or daycare to do a retake. Out of every 100 screenings, 
fewer than two need retaken. The $10,000 camera used in the screenings was purchased through generous support from the Fort Dodge Community Foundation and the Fort Dodge Noon Lions. Riemann said, Overall, the screening events take about 90 minutes to get all the children through. Most are fascinated by the camera equipment, he said. They screen infants and children at 25 sites in Webster, Calhoun, and Hamilton counties from late August through Thanksgiving. While most testing is done in the fall, it is a year-round program, and schools and daycares in the area can contact the Noon Lions Club to schedule a screening event. Participation in kids' site is voluntary and free. We enjoy doing it because it's a quality-of-life thing, Raymond said. We enjoy the interaction with the kids. We have excellent rapport with the nurses, the administrators, the daycare directors. It just flows so smoothly. The Lions Club motto is, We Serve, and Kids Sight embodies that mission, Raymond said. To me, this is service, he said. Providing something to someone is what drives me, and I feel that's what drives our club. Since the program began in the early 2000s, the Fort Dodge Noon Lions have tested more than 12,000 children and have been recognized for being one of Iowa's kids' sites' most active volunteers. We feel that, as a club, this is probably the most valuable service that we provide, and we're just glad to do it, Greenman said. We want to find a way to grow the program if we can, because there's daycares out there that may not use us, and we want them to be aware of what we do. On October the 16th, the noon lines reached the milestone of testing 1,000 kids for the third consecutive year. They were projected to reach 1,175 by the end of 2023. Riemann personally feels that Kids Site is an important service for the area children and families. Having had two daughters who are now adults, we always wanted to make sure that their health was good and that things were going well for them, he said. This gives the kids a step up on making sure that they can stay with their peers and not fall behind. Our next article is entitled, Twin Lakes Property Dispute Headed to Court, County in Legal Battle with Residents. It's written by Bill Shea. Dateline is Rockwell City. Calhoun County has taken multiple property owners to the, in the Twin Lakes area to court, hoping to resolve a property dispute that has been simmering for about five years. At issue is land between the east edge of Twin Lakes Road and the high water line of North Twin Lake. The county government asserts that the ground is public right-of-way. Residents insist it is their private property and has been for decades. The landowners and the Calhoun County Board of Supervisors have been going back and forth over the issue for about for a few years. The latest development occurred this month when the county filed a petition in Calhoun County District Court asking a judge to declare the disputed land is public property. Calhoun County would be doing a disservice to the citizens of Calhoun County by continuing to allow a few private landowners to continue free use of county property, said Assistant Calhoun County Attorney John C. Worden. According to Worden, government claims of land ownership are not limited by the passage of time. That, he said, is different from private claims of land ownership. The petition filed by Worden names 46 defendants, including 44 individuals and two trusts. It asks a judge to find that the real estate belongs to the county. It also asks the judge to bar the defendants from claiming ownership of the land. The case awaits a hearing. Todd Essing, 
one of the affected landowners previously told the messenger that private ownership of the property can be traced to an 1855 land patent issued by the federal government. He also asserted that the county government had, as of last fall, spent about $67,000 pursuing the matter. And the final story from the front page of the messenger is entitled, Stanhope Barn Draws Family Home. It's written by Lori Berglund. Jared and Jane Ostrom were looking for a place to raise their family when they came upon a farmstead south of Stanhope that Jared seemed to quickly know was the one. I appreciate barns a lot, so when we bought this place, it was a big draw for me, Ostrom said. Gary and Linda Erickson had owned the place for several years previously and used the barn for hog production. It was in good shape, and it was even the right color. It's got to be red, Ostrom said simply. Ostrom grew up in the area, and much of his family is still farming nearby. While he left the farm to work in ag business, the couple knew this was where they wanted to raise their family. That's what brought us back here, Ostrom said. I wanted my kids to have the opportunity to grow up in the country and to be exposed to agriculture. Indeed, this is a family that works together on this busy acreage. Son Mason and daughters Bryn and Amanda are active in 4-H and FFA, and Amanda has, was even crowned the 2023 Hamilton County Fair Queen. Far from bringing an empty shell, this barn is a working facility. It is home to hogs and cats and even a miniature horse that wanders when it's, wanders in when called. That's our money eater, Ostrom said, of Loki, the miniature horse. It serves no poop purpose but to be friendly. And friendly it is, nosing its way in to be petted by a new visitor. Loki seems to be a good ambassador for the barn as a whole. The barn has been well-maintained with a pig grow-out area to the east. It still has the original wood in it and some original wood pieces, so we wanted to protect it as good as we could, Ostrom said. There was new metal siding already on part of the barn, and he finished the remaining area with additional new siding. A steel roof keeps the barn dry so that it will last for years to come. They must have redone the floor in the barn, Ostrom said. Everything was stabilized for the grow-out area. Much of the barn's interior had been opened up to allow space for more hogs, but since Ostrom only raises a few show pigs, he began closing it up a little more, creating smaller rooms and adding insulation. We closed things in a little because we're not growing pigs on a large scale and we wanted it a little warmer in here, he said. He is converting many of the areas and adding farrowing rooms to keep the sows comfortable. Buford is the boar who serves as eye candy for the sows, that then receive artificial insemination. He's a Yorkshire who is common, uncommonly friendly and tame as boars go. Ostrom is expecting at least four sows to farrow early this winter and is hoping for a fifth one, but remains concerned about the success of the artificial insemination for that one. Ostrom said it's just a small operation of show pigs, but he would like to grow it a little bit. The barn is just one of several busy outbuildings on the farmstead, there are two old farrowing houses that date perhaps to the 1970s, but are still in good shape, each with a solid roof. Ostrom has three horses, including the miniature horse, a pony, and a quarter horse in one barn, along with a few dog kennels and some ducks. The other old farrowing house he is converting into a workshop and storage area. 
The barn was eye candy itself for Ostrom and helped draw his family to a place and a community that they loved to call home. After all, it's not really about hogs or horses. It's about family for the Ostroms. It's a small community and it's nice, Ostrom said. It's a good place to grow kids. A couple articles under the In Brief heading, Visit Fort Dodge Gets State Grant. Visit Fort Dodge, Inc. has received a $10,000 state grant to help pay for a print and digital promotion effort. The money will help pay for increased accessibility for the Fort Dodge and Webster County Destination Guide. It will also help pay for a corresponding out-of-state digital campaign. The money comes from the Iowa Economic Development Authority. And Pope Francis denounces the weapons industry. Dateline is Rome. Pope Francis on Monday blasted the weapons industry and its instruments of death that fuel wars as he made a Christmas Day appeal for peace in the world and in particular between Israel and the Palestinians. Speaking from the loggia of St. Peter's Basilica to the throngs of people below, Francis said he grieved the abominable attack of Hamas against southern Israel on October the 7th and called for the release of hostages. And he begged for an end to Israel's military campaign in Gaza and the appalling harvest of innocent civilians as he called for humanitarian aid to reach those in need. Francis devoted his Christmas Day blessing to a call for peace in the world, noting that the biblical story of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem sent a message of peace, but he said that Bethlehem is a place of sorrow and silence this year. Francis's annual Urbi et Orbi to the city and the world speech typically offers a lament of all the misery facing the world, and this year's edition was no different. From Armenia and Azerbaijan to Syria and Yemen, Ukraine to South Sudan and Congo to the Korean Peninsula, Francis appealed for humanitarian initiatives, dialogue, and security to prevail over violence and death. A few more brief news articles. First, Egypt floats new plan to end Israel-Hamas war. Dateline is Cairo, Egypt. Israel and Hamas on Monday gave cool public receptions to an Egyptian proposal to end their bitter war, but the long-standing enemies stopped short of rejecting the plan altogether, raising the possibility of a new round of diplomacy to halt a devastating Israeli offensive in the Gaza Strip. The Egyptian plan calls for a phased hostage release and the formation of a Palestinian government of experts to administer the Gaza Strip and occupied West Bank, according to a senior Egyptian official and a European diplomat familiar with the proposal. The Egyptian official, speaking on condition of anonymity to discuss the proposal, said the details were worked out with the Gulf nation of Qatar and presented to Israel, Hamas, the United States, and European governments. Egypt and Qatar both mediate between Israel and Hamas, while the U.S. is Israel's closest ally and a key power in the region. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu did not comment directly on the proposal, but speaking to members of his Likud party, he said he was determined to press ahead with Israel's offensive launched in response to an October 7th Hamas attack on southern Israel that killed 1,200 people and took 240 others hostage. We are expanding the fight in the coming days, and this will be a long battle, and it isn't close to finished, he said. Next, Ukraine celebrates Christmas on December 25th for the first time. 
Christmas carried more than spiritual weight for many Ukrainians this year, as the country newly observed it as a public holiday on December the 25th, rather than on the later date followed in Russia. The change, enacted in legislation signed by President Volodymyr Zelensky in July, reflects both Ukrainians' dismay with the 22-month-old Russian invasion and their assertion of a national identity. Ukraine is predominantly Orthodox Christian, but the faith is divided between two churches, one of which had long affiliation with the Russian Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which didn't recognize the authority of the Russian Church and had been regarded as schismatic, was granted full recognition in 2019 by the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople, Orthodoxy's top authority. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church, which was a branch of the Russian Church, announced in 2022 after the start of the Russia-Ukraine war that it was breaking ties with Moscow and considered itself autonomous. However, its parishes continue to follow the same liturgical calendar as the Russian Church and will observe Christmas on, this, on January the 7th. And migrant caravan in southern Mexico marks Christmas Day by trudging onward. Christmas Day meant the same as any other day for thousands of migrants walking through southern Mexico, more trudging under a hot sun. There were no presents, and Christmas Eve dinner was a sandwich, a bottle of water, and a banana handed out by the Catholic Church to some of the migrants in the town of Ivaro Obregón in the southern state of Chipas, which borders Guatemala. Migrants spent Christmas night sleeping on a scrap of cardboard or plastic stretched out under an awning or tent or the bare ground. In the morning, it was waking as usual, 4 a.m., to get an early start and avoid the worst of the heat, walking to the next town, Huxtala, 20 miles away. There are two obituaries in today's Fort Dodge Messenger. The first is Clara J. Robeson of Fort Dodge, who passed away Friday, December the 23rd, at her home. Services will be 11.30 a.m. Thursday, December the 28th, 2023, at Lofsweiler Funeral Home, with Pastor John Elkin officiating. A visitation will be one hour prior to the, one hour prior at the funeral home. And our other obituary is Barbara Ann Goebel, age 82, of Fort Dodge, who passed away on Saturday, December the 23rd, 2023, at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home in Fort Dodge. Arrangements are currently pending and have been entrusted with Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. Now we turn to sports, and the top story is a college football story, and it's entitled Midwest Roots. UW's DeBoer built a dynasty in Sioux Falls. It's written by Eric Olson of the Associated Press. Kalen DeBoer got called into the athletic director's office a few days after the University of Sioux Falls won its third national championship in four years. The 2009 Cougars had just finished one of the most dominating seasons in NAIA history. In Willie Sanchez's mind, DeBoer had outgrown the small Baptist-affiliated school in South Dakota's largest city. Sanchez said he asked DeBoer if he had aspirations of coaching at a higher level. DeBoer hesitantly told him he did. He's a South Dakota boy, and it seems like the Midwest people don't want to leave, and I can understand why, Sanchez recalled. I said, Kalen, 
you have more ability and should go forward. He said he had some inquiries, and I told him he needed to look into those possibilities. For good measure, Sanchez threatened to fire him if he didn't take another job. I said that in a joking way, he said. I certainly wasn't going to fire a guy who just won a national championship, but it was a way to kind of motivate him, and hopefully he would look for a position at a higher level, which he did, and I'm glad he did. DeBoer, who lived his first 35 years in South Dakota, is 49 now and head coach at Washington. He has led the unbeaten Huskies to the college football playoff in his second season, an effort that earned him Coach of the Year honors from the Associated Press last week. They played Texas in the semifinal at the Sugar Bowl on January the 1st. No one knows if DeBoer really needed Sanchez's nudge, but the coach still appreciates the brief the belief his old boss had in him. I was still pretty young, and getting a chance to go be challenged at the next level with different people was certainly something I think he saw for me, DeBoer said, even if I didn't feel that way at the time. DeBoer's rise through the coaching ranks began a few weeks after his meeting with Sanchez when he was hired as Southern Illinois' offensive coordinator. It was the first of six stops over 12 years. In nine seasons as a head coach, Sioux Falls from 2005 to 2009, Fresno State 2020 to 2021, and Washington 2022 to 2023, his record is 103 wins and 11 losses. It is crazy, said DeBoer's high school coach, Mike Bush, drawing out the last word. It's by no accident either. It's hard to win games at any level, and him and his staff... They find a way to win, and their kids find a way to win, and they believe. Though DeBoer left South Dakota in 2010, South Dakota never left him. Neither did the lessons he learned from his mentor at Sioux Falls, NAIA Hall of Fame coach Bob Young. Young, who died last January, spoke of DeBoer often with close friend Jim Heinitz, the retired coach at Augustana in Sioux Falls. Heinitz said Young knew DeBoer had the makings of a good coach and did what he could to foster his growth. Young developed DeBoer into an All-American receiver who helped the Cougars win their first national championship in 1996 and kept him around to coach receivers the next year. Then he helped him get an assistance job at Washington High in Sioux Falls and hired him in 2000 as offensive coordinator. When Young retired, he urged Sanchez to hire DeBoer as his successor. DeBoer had a record of 67 wins and three losses in five seasons, 49-1 and one in conference games, and won the NAIA titles in 2006, 2008, and 2009. The Cougars had a record of 56 wins and one loss from 2006 to 2009, with the only loss coming to the 2007 championship, coming in the 2007 championship game. His last Sioux Falls team outscored opponents 755-158 to and beat North Dakota of the football championship subdivision 28-13. His ties to Sioux Falls remained strong. Washington defensive coordinator Chuck Morrell was DeBoer's teammate and later his defensive coordinator at Sioux Falls. Huskies offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb was DeBoer's line coach at Sioux Falls and on staff with him at Eastern Michigan and Fresno State. I understand who they are as people, DeBoer said. I know that they're relentless in their work ethic and that they want to do the same things I want to, 
and that's making a difference in the people around us and the lives we touch each and every day. I know that they'll leave with the ego at the door and do what's always best for our team. DeBoer grew up in northeastern South Dakota, first in Corona, a population of 69, and later in Millbank, with a population of 3,500. His mother, Phyllis Waterfall, worked at a drugstore while raising him and his brother and sister as a single parent. Next, I'll read an article entitled, Dodgers Wrestlers Split at Dual Tourney in KC. It's written by Eric Pratt. Dateline is Kansas City. Second-ranked Fort Dodge continued to learn about itself under new circumstances here on Saturday as the Dodgers split duels against opponents from four different states at St. Pius X High School. Head coach Bobby Thompson's squad easily handled Mexico-Missouri High School 54-15 and Bentonville-Arkansas High 58-16. FDSH came up short against Oklahoma's top-rated Marlowe, Oklahoma 42-29 and St. Pius X, the host school, which is number one in Missouri, 39-36. Overall, it was a good experience, Thompson said. We left some points out there and had a chance to win both of the duels we dropped, especially against St. Pius. Not having ranked senior Kane Buttrick and being open at 150 didn't help, obviously. Our guys battled and we performed pretty well for the most part. We grew, which was the most important thing at this point of the season. Five Dodgers went undefeated on the day. Number three senior Drew Ayala. Top ranked junior Coy Davidson. Third ranked senior Demarion Ross. Number one sophomore Dreshawn Ross. And ninth ranked sophomore Luke Fierke. I think the biggest thing right now is finding more physical and mental consistency, Thompson said. Do we have the right mental approach? What is our plan? Are we ex executing that plan? We need to do a better job across the board of thinking ahead and being not just tougher, but smarter wrestlers than our opponents. Fort Dodge returns to action on Thursday, January the 4th at Waterloo East. I'll finish up with an article entitled Chiefs Struggle in Loss. The smell of victory cigars wafted down the tunnel beneath Arrowhead Stadium straight from the Las Vegas Raiders in the celebratory visiting locker room to the despondent home locker room of the Kansas City Chiefs. For one, the scent of success. For the other, the scent of stench of a sloppy mess. Taking advantage of two defensive touchdowns for the second straight week and riding an aggressive mindset that shut down Patrick Mahomes and the rest of the Kansas City Chief offense, the Raiders held off the Chiefs 20-14 on Monday to not only deny their longtime AFC West rival another division crown, but keep their postseason alive. That was one of our mantras, Raiders interim head coach Antonio Pierce said afterward, by any means necessary. That meant big defensive tackle Bilal Nichols returning a fumble eight yards for a touchdown and Jack Jones taking interception 33 yards for another score seven seconds later. It meant Adam O'Connell never completing a pass after the first quarter, yet also never making the same mistakes that Mahomes made for Kansas City on a soggy Christmas day. The Raiders became the first NFL team since the year 2000 to win without completing a pass after the first quarter and on only the fifth team to beat the Chiefs at Arrowhead Stadium without scoring an offensive touchdown. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Scott Splava. 
Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.